As our Lord Jesus comes, as our Lord Jesus comes to the close of this prayer, these last two sentences of what we call his high priestly prayer. Prayer because he makes requests, requests for himself, requests for us. High priestly because he represents us, he intercedes for us, he, he prays for us specific requests. He, he prays that we be kept in the Father's name. He prays that we have the very joy that he knows. He prays that we be kept from evil, be kept from the evil one. He prays that we would be sanctified in the truth which is his word. He prays that we would be one, one with those who have gone before us, one even with those who will come after us, that we will all believe the same, we'll all be one in faith and one in love towards each other, even in this community, in this generation, that we would love each other as he's loved us. And he prays that a day would come when we would be with him and see him and see his see His glory. He makes specific requests for us as our high priest, this one who intercedes for us. What catches our attention in this prayer? Most certainly everything that Jesus does, everything that He says is significant to us. But what catches and captures our attention in this prayer is the moment of it. That is, when it takes place, it takes place right before His crucifixion, this most intimate time. And as He comes, He as we come to these last two sentences, we find no requests here. He's summing up. He, he doesn't pray for anything in particular. He just makes statements. He, he makes statements about his father. He makes statements about what he has done. He makes statements about what he's going to continue to do. And he gives us the purpose for which he has done it and will do it. He begins, O righteous father. And then he says what it is that he's done. He says, I've made known to them your name, something he's already done. But then he goes on to say, I will continue to make it known. So he's done something, he's made known the Father's name, he's going to continue to make it known, that somebody's going to continue on doing. And then he gives the purpose for it all, he says, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them, meaning that all of this making the Father's name known would have the end result that those who come to know it would have within them the very love of the Father, the very love that the Father has for the Son, and the very presence of Christ in them. As Jesus begins, O righteous Father, it's curious, it's interesting that he uses that particular expression. For nowhere else does he use that particular expression. When he refers to his Father, most especially in prayer, he speaks of our Father in heaven, my Father in heaven, or simply my Father. He speaks of the heavenly Father from time to time. In this particular prayer, he mentions Holy Father, which has a sense of righteous Father in it, righteousness in it, but... but but a little different nuance, this sense that the Father is unique, the Father is different. He's like no other Father, the Holy Father. Yes, He's pure and righteous and holy, but He's like none other. But now He gets very specific. Some, For some reason, on His mind, as He comes to the end of this prayer, He thinks of His Father as the righteous one, righteous Father, righteousness. As an attribute of God, tells us that God is the one who is right, what righteousness means. There is that which is right. And if he's the righteous father, he's the father who is right. And 
the righteousness of God is comprehensive. That is, it's internal and external. It's, it, it represents all of who He is internally. God is righteous. That means that all of His desires and all of His thoughts and all of His plans are right. There's nothing wrong about them. They're all right. Anything contrary, in fact, to those thoughts, those desires, those plans would be wrong. Everything about him internally is right, is righteous. And it's an external righteousness as well. It's manifested, it's, it's seen, it's expressed. It's expressed by that which he speaks, that which he says, that which he communicates. Everything that he communicates, everything that he says is right. And not only that, everything that he does is right. He is the righteous Father. So this will inform these last couple of sentences, Jesus coming to the end of his prayer. How, how will it do that? How will these... How is this expression, righteous Father, uh, inform these last two sentences? Well, at least this. We'll come to some more in a moment. But at least this. That Jesus, knowing that he was sent by the Father to reveal the Father, that is to make Him known, that was right. It was right for Jesus to do that. See, unlike the world, as Jesus, Jesus puts it, O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. Unlike the world, Jesus knows that He's uniquely qualified to make the Father known. What He makes known about the Father is right. That He makes the Father known is indeed right as well. It's quite easy to get into conversations about God. Open your Bible on an airplane. People look at you funny, often, but they look at you and they begin to talk. It's exactly the thing I don't want to do on an airplane, but it's exactly the thing I mostly do on airplanes. Uh, Because I read these books that have odd titles to people. Uh, And I read my Bible on the airplane because it's a good time of quiet for me, I think, uh, where no one will interrupt me. Uh, But people talk about God. People have opinions about God. The question is, who's qualified to talk about God? Philosophers talk about God. Uh, In this uh, moment of history for us, as we're um, getting ready for an election, candidates talk about God. In these days, that's always a question. What do you think about God? What is your faith like? And they tell us about God. The question is, are they capable of doing that? Should we listen to them? Are they saying right things about God? Do they have the the qualifications to really be able to speak and to talk about God? Um, Bill Maher has just produced a movie documentary on religions. He talks about God in that. Is he qualified? Is he able? Is he one we should listen to? Oprah talks about God all the time. I hear, I don't watch Oprah, but I read about that. In fact, I was looking at a comic this week, a little cartoon in a magazine that uh, preacher people read, and, and uh, it was, it was a, a picture of a, a woman uh, going out the door um, of the church shaking her pastor's hand, so don't do this today when you're going out the door shaking my hand. She didn't say the normal, I enjoyed that. She said, um, whatever that means, but she said, um, I will check with Oprah to see if what you said was really the word of God. <laughs> right? Yeah, we laugh nervously. Uh, you may have learned about God from your grandparents. You may have learned about God from your parents. You may have learned about God from me. The question is, who's really qualified to speak of God? And Jesus said, I am. Don't listen to anybody. 
who tells you about God unless they tell you about me accurately. Don't listen to anybody who tells you about the Father unless they're quoting me, unless they're using me to inform their understanding about who the Father is because I'm uniquely qualified, unlike any in the world, to uh, speak of to speak of God. He says it here. I know you. That sense of knowing God is intimate. John, in fact, opens his gospel with this idea of Jesus being the one to reveal the Father to us. He begins, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And so he's saying there was a beginning, and in the beginning the Word already was. So the Word predates any beginning. So when the beginning began, the Word still was. In the beginning was the Word, this one who would communicate accurately that which is true about God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the sense of with God, not simply alongside Him, but face to face with Him, united to Him. This, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then He comes out and gives it to us, and He said, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then He speaks of this one, this Jesus, who would come, verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, says, Jesus has come, this Word, He's come to reveal God, to reveal the Father. He dwelt among us, so we can know God by knowing Jesus. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. He says, how can anybody really report accurately about who God is unless they've seen him? But but nobody, at least nobody among you, has really ever seen him. So John says, no one has ever seen God. We could put in a however. The only God who is at the Father's side, meaning this word, meaning Jesus, he has made him known. Thus, Jesus could say about himself over in John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is, my origins are in glory. That's my home. You want to know my address. It's interesting that in the life of Jesus, people always wanted to know where he was from. Nazareth? Bethlehem? Where do you come from? Well, he descended. He came from glory. So that was his home, thus uniquely qualified to speak, to show us the Father. Thus he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thus the apostle could write of him in the book of Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God. You can't see God, but you see Jesus. He is the very image of God. The author of Hebrews could say that he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature, the exact imprint of God Himself. That's Jesus. To see Him is to see the Father. And so He came to make the Father known. Now, at this moment in time, as Jesus is praying that prayer, it's in a moment in history. And so we have to ask the question, how has He made the Father known up to that point in time? He's going to continue to make it known from that point in time. But how did he make it known up to that point in time? Certainly in the incarnation, Jesus has come. And we've seen the Father in the very coming of Jesus. We see the faithfulness of the Father. The Father had promised that one would come, and now here he is. Thus, the Father is faithful to his word, trustworthy, if you will. Not only that, we see the glory of the Father. Because here's Jesus coming, 
and as he had already said, come to give himself, come to die. Thus, the Father's glory was worth Jesus' own life. So in his coming, we see the very glory of the Father. We see the wisdom of God. Because no one really could contend with Jesus as he walked around and spoke things about which no other person had the authority to speak about. Jesus spoke with such authority that it simply put people back on their heels ultimately. Even when challenged, he overcame their challenges. He spoke about things that nobody had any first-hand experience with, nobody really knew was true and what that was really like. He spoke of glory. He spoke of heaven. He spoke of the reality of hell. He spoke of that which was really important when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you think you need and perhaps do at the moment, they will be added unto you. But seek first the kingdom of God. That's what's valuable. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but rather lay up treasures in heaven. That's really what's eternally valued. Don't be afraid, Jesus said, of the one who can kill your body, but fear the one who can send you body and soul into hell. Jesus knew what was valuable, knew what was important. He knew the Father's righteousness as he would speak to the Pharisees and and pick out their hypocrisy. He would know the Father's mercy as he would speak to those in sin and forgive their sin. Uh, there was once a man who was, who, who was so ill that his friends had to bring him to Jesus. When they brought him to Jesus, he was, there, there was so, such a crowd around him that they couldn't get the man to Jesus. So they had to make a hole in the roof and they lowered him down and they lowered him down and Jesus healed him. But the response that Jesus made to him was, you're forgiven your sins. What an amazing thing. He revealed that God is one who forgives sins. In God's righteousness, he's the one that will make things right. And so as Jesus went around in his mercy and grace and compassion, all showing what the Father was like, he would heal and bring things that were out of sync right. He would bring things that were wrong into that which is right. Thus he would heal and he would say, no, no, blindness isn't right. See, lameness isn't right. Walk, death isn't right. Have life. And he would see this righteousness of the Father being manifested. Even in the miracles that he did, especially as John lays them out for us, we, we see this about the Father through Jesus. He's at a wedding, Jesus is, and they run out of wine, and Jesus' mom comes to him, and, and, and he takes water, and he turns it into wine. And we wonder, what does that really mean? It means that he shows his glory in some sense. But, but how is that? Just basically in the kindness to, to help out this young couple, this couple being married that now could be embarrassed and, and, and the bride's mom and, and, and the host of the wedding to, to show that was well, certainly the kindness of God. But, but could there be more? The very bridegroom readying his bride. And Jesus is the bridegroom, his church is the bride. And he takes this water that was in these, these, these pots that would be used for ceremonial cleansing and, and he says, I'm going to have a cleansed bride, not from this water, but something that is like wine that is my very blood. And he heals often on the Sabbath. Not only to rankle the religious leaders who think it's wrong to worship on the Sabbath, but to say, there's coming a rest when all will be whole when God will make things right. There are a group of people that are hungry and he he feeds them and he says, as if to say, I can feed you physically, but but there's something more that 
that God will give to you nourishment, spiritual nourishment as you come to me. There's one who's blind. He gives him sight and he says, I'm the light of the world. You'll be able to see. So Jesus said, look to me and you'll be able to see all that God really is. There's this one who's a friend who dies. Jesus brings to life. And he says, ah, that's because I'm the resurrection and the life. That's how God is. He takes that which is dead and he brings it to life. Jesus, you see, comes to reveal the Father to make him known. He made him known by way of the incarnation. He made him known to those in that day by his very life, by his teachings, by his character. To see him is to see the Father. Let me ask you to stand, please. And let's sing together this song in Christ alone, because it is indeed in Christ alone that we see the Father. Well, I have no really good transition to go from there into my next meditation. So take a deep breath and come with me back to John in chapter 17, this great prayer of Jesus. Jesus said, Righteous Father, I have made known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known. He makes it known by way, first and foremost, of the incarnation as he comes, is this word who was before the beginning, before the beginning as we know the beginning, this eternal word. And he comes in the incarnation to make the Father known by that which he says, by that which he is among the people, and by that which he does. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to continue to make your name known. Now, how is he going to do that? Now, Jesus had been speaking with his disciples just earlier, not much earlier that same evening, about the fact that he was going to be crucified, in essence, and, and that he would be going away. And so the question is, if he's going away, how is it that he can continue to make the name of the Father known? And when we talk about the name of the Father, we're talking about God himself. How is he going to make God known to us if he's not going to be around us, with us? We know ultimately he'll make the Father known in glory. He had already prayed that a day would come when we would be with him and that we would see his glory. And so, so he's going to have this time ultimately when we'll see it and we'll see it clearly because we'll see him face to face. We'll see him as he is. But that's not for a while, at least we don't know when that is going to be, but he had gone away. So how is he continuing to make the Father known even now? Well, by his Spirit. He had spoke to his disciples, spoken to his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16 and verse 14, Jesus spoke these words just that same evening. He speaks of the Holy Spirit. He says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit's going to come and He's going to, going to glorify Jesus. That is, the job of the Holy Spirit, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the task of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus to us. And so as he reveals Jesus to us, we will then get to know who God is because Jesus will continue to make the Father known. All that to happen. But I suggest that there is something even more immediate on Jesus' mind about continuing to reveal the Father, to continue to make known the Father to them. It was right literally around the corner from that moment. Because as he finishes this prayer, he will work his way to a garden called Gethsemane where he'll face the agony of what was to come. He would face the agony of the cross. He would face what no human being in their right mind would ever desire to face, that is, 
the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, he would face that. Thus, he's coming to that around the corner. Jesus begins his thoughts, as we mentioned a few minutes ago. He prefaces these lines by saying, Oh, righteous Father, again, he has the righteousness of God on his mind. Righteousness is an interesting word. In, in Old Testament language, in Hebrew, the language in which the Old Testament was written, and in Greek, the language in which the New Testament was written, in both of those languages, there is one word for righteousness, and that word can also be, be translated as justice. So if you're reading in the Old Testament and you read the word righteousness, you know it could also be translated as justice. You're reading in the New Testament and you read the word righteousness, it can also be translated as justice. Those two words go hand in hand. And, and we can see the link between the two. Because righteousness means that there is something that is right. Justice means that that which is wrong will be punished. And so righteousness always carries with it this sense of that which is just or a judging that will come to determine whether something is right or whether it isn't right by that particular standard. And so Jesus has this on his mind, the righteousness of God. There's something right about him, and there is justice in him as well. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, he came upon this one we call John the Baptist. And in coming upon John, you remember the situation. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And you remember John, in humility, says to Jesus, uh, I, I'm not worthy even to un unstrap your sandals. Why is it that you would think that I would be willing to baptize you? And I think we all understand that. If we were in John's shoes, we would think the very same thing. I, I'm not worthy for this. But notice in Matthew in chapter 3 and verse 13 how Matthew puts that scene. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus coming to be baptized, he said, no, 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 it's right that we do this. In fact, we, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus came to be baptized, in a very real sense, he was identifying with people. He was identifying with the very people that the Father would give him, this very group of people for whom we would die, this very group of people that he prays on this night for, that they would receive eternal life, that he would give them eternal life. And he's identifying with that group of people so that all righteousness would be fulfilled, that the righteousness of the Father would be satisfied. Even the justice of the Father would be satisfied. Because he knew that there was a right standard. He knew that to be in right relationship with the Father, there needed to be righteousness. He was righteous. We are not if we were to enter into, the, into a relationship with the Father, then righteousness would have to be fulfilled. And thus, He comes, He identifies with us, He takes this symbol of cleansing, He takes this symbol of repentance, even upon Himself for us. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 of the Gospel, he puts it like this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That little expression, the righteousness of God, tormented a monk by the name of Martin Luther. I'm sure on October 31st you celebrated Reformation Day. I guess you didn't. Uh, but you should have, because that was the day, uh, October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther tacked up his 95 thesis and began all of this and produced Presbyterians, ultimately. Uh, produced Lutherans, too. And uh, Luther wouldn't have been thrilled with either group. But, uh, but he did. That's what sort of happened through the midst of all this in this Reformation time. But, but this is an expression. In, in, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, tormented this monk Martin Luther. It tormented him because he said, wait a minute, if, if the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, then we're doomed. Because the way he understood the righteousness of God was simply the justice of God. That God is righteous, we're not. Therefore, if the gospel says there's righteousness that must be fulfilled, then what that must mean is that we're all condemned for our sin. That would be righteous, that would be just. But the operative expression in this sentence is, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The question is, how is the righteousness of God revealed in this good news in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel as righteousness, as justice. That is true. But the good news of the gospel is that the justice of God is fulfilled, is satisfied, but upon Jesus. Not only that, but because of this great work of Christ, that he takes upon himself our sin, thus receives the justice of God for us and gives to us his righteousness. Now, you see, in order to stand in the presence of God, we must be righteous. There must be righteousness that surrounds us. We have to be righteous in his presence in order to survive there, in order not to be condemned. And so in the gospel, this righteousness comes and it comes like this saying that Jesus has taken the penalty for our sin. Thus, we're forgiven our sins. Jesus has given to us the very righteousness of God so we can stand in his presence. That is the righteousness of God in the gospel satisfied and given even to us. In fact, he puts it the Apostle does in Romans chapter 3 like this, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, again, same expression, this rightness of God. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. He says there is a righteousness of God that is given to All who believe in Jesus. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the trouble. And are justified, that is, righteous, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. whom God put forward as a propitiation. Big word, propitiation. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? Come on. Give yourself a quiz real quick. Propitiation means... 
the wrath of God is satisfied. Right? If you have an NIV, it's an atoning sacrifice. All it means is that something's been paid. Something's been paid, so what was missing is made up. And he's that. He's that propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The question always was before the time of Jesus, how can God really pass over the sins of sinners? Well, we had all these sacrifices in the Old Testament that kind of looked forward to something that would take place, but but we know that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't stand for us. And so how could he do that? Well, here's how. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus, that is. God is righteous. All righteousness is fulfilled in the work of Christ. God's righteous standard that says, this is right, if you don't obey it, justice must be done. That is met in Jesus by way of his death. And then upon his grace, he gives to us his righteousness, having taken our sin. Earlier that evening, Jesus was with his disciples. He would present this to them. Uh, It was round a table that was well known to them, this Passover table. And upon this particular table, there was an understanding of deliverance. There was an understanding of of one for another, this Passover lamb that would stand uh, for those who lived under its blood, who slept under its blood, and, and they would be the ones who would survive. They would be the ones to live one for another. And then Jesus brings himself into that whole picture and he was there he takes the bread that was upon that table and he and he breaks it and he gives it to to them probably in a surprising kind of a moment and he gives it to them and he said this is my body this lamb i'm the lamb this is my body which is given for you and then in the same way as the scripture has it he took the cup and after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples And he said to them, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the apostle adds, As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And proclaiming the Lord's death, we're proclaiming that all righteousness has been fulfilled. We need to get that. All righteousness has been fulfilled. That Jesus did indeed take our sin. I know we've heard this a hundred times, thousands of times. We need to hear it a thousand and one, two thousand and two, ten thousand and five, whatever your number is. You should keep a track of this. How many times have I been told this? This is our very life. All righteousness has been fulfilled. The righteous standard of God has been fulfilled in Jesus. Justice has been done. Those who believe in Him are forgiven, not because they've paid for their own sins, but because He has. Because if we pay for our own sins, we're done. Because that's an eternal paying. Can never be satisfied. But Jesus, because of his worth, paid it that afternoon, that next day, upon the cross. Where he experienced the forsakenness of the Father. Righteousness has been fulfilled. And then because God demands righteousness of us, he supplies that which we need by way of the very righteousness of Christ. And thus, we stand before God, clothed in the righteousness 
of our Lord Jesus accepted by Him. He's made to us, known, the Father, the Father's righteousness, the Father's love. For this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And that He gave His Son as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me and for us that we really would get that. We really would understand it today more deeply than perhaps ever before. All righteousness has been fulfilled in Jesus, by Jesus, because of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus. So I pray, Father, that we would understand that, that we would see that. And that today, this morning, you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart from its common use, the way we commonly understand these things. And, and Father, that you would enable us, by way of this table, to be in the very presence of Jesus, to fellowship with Him, to feed upon Him by faith. So that we would understand and live more assured that we know you. Because of what Jesus has done, we know you. Because of who Jesus is, we know you. Because of how he has revealed you to us, we know you because of your work in us to give us faith. So, Father, I pray that you would meet us here Jesus, meet us here. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace. Evangelical Presbyterian Church is the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope, except in His sovereign mercy, who receive, believe, and depend upon Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel as the Savior of sinners. And that we desire to live lives that express that, that are consistent with that, that are worthy of that, if you will, in the sense that we live saying, it isn't because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. I trust in Him that in Him all righteousness has been fulfilled. That's true for you. Let me invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup, and as you do, as you eat it, remind yourself, in Jesus, all righteousness has been fulfilled. Please come. Finally, this, as Jesus speaks, he says, Righteous Father, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The, the mission of Jesus to make the Father known, the purpose of that mission is so that those to whom He gives the eternal life would have something in them. And what would be in them would be the very love of the Father. And this love of the Father is the very love with which the Father has loved Jesus. Think about that. The Father loves us as He loves his own son, Jesus. I have three older sisters, and they always said growing up that I was my mother's favorite. And they were right uh, about that. 
um, saved me a lot of being grounded in other kinds of things that they had to endure that I didn't, amazingly so. And uh, we've all laughed about that even now that we're old. They still remark about that, that I'm still mom's favorite. And uh, there are times when I wish they would know that. Not a lot of times, but there are times when I wish they would know what it would be like to be mom's favorite. But... <laughs> but as God comes to us, as Jesus comes to us and he says that I've revealed the Father's name so that the love with which the Father has loved me may be in you. He's saying, I want you to know what it's like to be loved as the favorite child. I want you to know what it's like to be loved as I have been loved by my Father. The child that that deserves the love the least is now put forward. The child that deserves the love the least has now come before the Father, and the Father loves that child as if he's the most deserving. Because, you see, we come, as we've said, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven our sin, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. People say, how is it that now God looks upon us? And and that's a many-layered answer, because God is omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. But the way that, that, that we understand as we enter into the presence of God, we come in Jesus' name. And we say we come in Jesus' name. We say we come not by our own merit, our own goodness, or on our own standing, but we come in Him. We come on the basis of who He is and what He has done, clothed in Him. And we have that little expression in evangelicalism that says that we come to God just as we are. And you know that isn't true. Because if we come to the Father simply as we are, we'll be condemned. Because we're sinners in His sight. We come to Jesus, the Lamb of God, as the song says, just as I am. Lamb of God I come. We come to Jesus as we are. That's all the only way we can come. We don't clean up ourselves before we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus as we are. Sinners as we are, deserving of God's wrath. But we come to Jesus as we are. And He, by virtue of His work of grace then takes us into the very presence of God. You see the difference. I don't want to confuse you. I don't want people saying, well, I guess I got a bit better before I get to God. No, no, no. You have to get perfect before you get to God. The only way to do that is through Jesus. So we come to Him just as we are. We come to Him just as we are, sinners as we are. We lay ourselves before Him. He brings that work of wonderful cleansing. He clothes us with His righteousness and He takes us into the very throne room of God. Takes us into the very presence of God. We come as we are to Jesus in Him. Go to the Father as we are in Him. That's how we're accepted by the Father. And it's then that this great love is known to us. This love by which the Father loves the Son, we know it then. In Romans, in chapter 5, the Apostle speaks of how this can be. Because, you see, it's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. As we mentioned in our last meditation, that the Holy Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. He comes to show who Jesus is. And He works in us that we may receive that revelation. Romans, chapter 5, and verse 1. The Apostle writes, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, based on the fact that we've been righteous, justified, we've been brought into the very presence of God, accepted by Him, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how peace comes. Verse 2, through Him, that is through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, so we come by faith, recipients of grace, and we stand in the very, very presence of God in this grace. And then he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, all of that, being in the very presence of God, justified, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, now we have hope. We have hope that we won't be condemned. We actually have hope in the glory of God. That is that one day, a day will come, one day when we will be glorified, one day when we will live in His glory, one day where everything will reflect His glory, everything will be right. That's our hope. No matter what else, that's our hope. In fact, you get the sense, given what he's going to say, that Paul realizes that's going to be the next thought on our minds. Okay, that's our hope, but how do I get through right now? Well, I think he says, cling to that hope that a day will come when everything will be right. And then he says this, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Not because sufferings are fun, by the way. Not because sufferings aren't real, by the way. He says, we, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings because of what we know. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. That suffering is going to produce something which is good. Endurance. This endurance is good. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that sufferings, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Some translations have proven character. It shows that God is really at work within you. And so what's happening in the midst of this suffering is that it's conforming you to the image of Christ, which is good. And character produces hope. We look at that and we say, oh, yes, God is still at work in me. Now, it may take time for that to happen. And so we're always clinging to this Hope at the end, this hope in the glory of God, this hope that the day is coming when everything really will be right. And he says, cling to that. Remember, you haven't been condemned. All righteousness has been fulfilled. The wrath of God against you is now gone. So you're in the very presence of God in Jesus, righteous before him. So hope in that. Cling to that. When difficult times come, continue to cling to that and watch as God is at work in you. And He's at work in you in the midst of these suffering, producing something. He's producing endurance. You're still trusting in Him. However hard that may be, however erratic that may be, you're still trusting in Him. And indeed, you're seeing the very character of Christ being formed in you. Hope in that. See that happening in the midst of you. And then He says this, verse 5. And hope doesn't put us to shame, which means it doesn't disappoint us, which means we can really count on this hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so Jesus continues to reveal the Father by way of the Holy Spirit. Jesus continues to reveal the Father to us and let us know that the very love with which the Father loved the Son, is now in us, dwelling in us, part of our very lives, because the Holy Spirit is doing that work in us. Now the question is this, how does He do that? How does the Holy Spirit do that? How does He do that work in us? Well, we keep on reading. Verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, this is the key. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does the Holy Spirit uh, 
pour out this love of God in us so that we'll know that we're loved by him. Well, he does it first by taking a group of people called apostles and appointing some to write down that which is true about God in a book about what Jesus did. And so he says, consider what Jesus did. It was while we were yet sinners that he died for us. That should show that God actually does love you. God, doesn't, God actually loves us. In fact, the, the logic of that comes in Romans, spelled out in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where the apostle asks this question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? That these things is having been saved, having come into the very acceptance of God. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Why does he say that? He says, because it's God's work. This is the work that God has done in Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he's obviously for us. Think about that. And realize that his being for us is this expression of his love for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do we know that he's really for us? He goes on to explain verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, think about it. Meditate on it. Think about what Christ has done. And think about what God has done for us in Christ. Does it not convince you that he loves you? He gave Jesus for you. You say, yeah, but it's I'm having a bad day. <laughs> he says, compare your bad day to the evidence that he's already given to you. The fact that he gave his only son for you. Live on that. That's the proof. He says, the very love that the Father has loved me is now in you. It dwells in you. And it's to be among you, to you to live as a community of those who are loved by God. And Christ says, and I myself will dwell within you. My very presence here. And as you see, this, this whole prayer of Jesus is setting us up for that. He prays that we be kept in the Father's name. What does he mean by that? He, he means that we would never forget God, that we would always have before us a remembrance of what God has done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a work of the Spirit, you see. And so thus we pray, God, continue to teach me, continue to show me, continue to enable me to plumb the depths of what Christ has done. So Jesus prays that we be kept in the Father's name, that we'd know his joy, that is to say, that once hearing of this great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that righteousness has been fulfilled, that we would be filled with joy. Yes, that means everything. And that joy would, would both, on the one hand, inform our hope and be part of our hope as well. That we'd be filled with that joy. That we'd be kept from the evil one. Don't, Jesus says, allow the evil one to tempt them away. Don't, Jesus says, allow the evil one to get their joy. Don't, says, the evil, uh, says Jesus, allow the evil one to cause them to turn away. And so he prays that we be kept from evil. He prays that we be sanctified, that this righteousness that we're clothed with would work in us so that we would know the very joy of holiness before God, that we would know that experience, the experience that we would live with all the days of eternity as we're in the very presence of Jesus. He prays that we would be one, that we would agree with the apostles concerning the truth of God, thus one with them, and even in our own communities, we would be one with each other in love, loving each other as Christ has loved us, and that we would have this hope of looking for the day 
when we would be in His very presence, seeing His glory. That is the very heart of our Lord Jesus for us. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us, God, that You would grant us grace to know this again, how many thousands of times, how many hundreds of times at least that we've, we've heard this, and I pray that we'd never forget it, that it would sink deep within us, that all righteousness has been fulfilled, that You fulfilled this righteousness by taking Jesus for us, giving His righteousness to us, all as an expression and proof of Your love to us, that now lives within us by the Holy Spirit. Father, keep us in your name. Give us the joy of Jesus. Keep us from the evil one. Sanctify us in the truth. Cause us to be one in love with you and each other. Enable us to live with the hope of being with Jesus and seeing his glory. Righteous Father, thank you for fulfilling all righteousness in Jesus. Father, we pray especially for us as a church. Much is before us. I pray for the Family Promise Ministry. Thank you for presenting that to us. I pray that in January that our church can love people in such a way that those people would see you, Father. That it would be revealing to them that they would say, yes, I see God. And that they would come to you, those who don't know you in that ministry. Father, I thank you for our city commissioners and how they're willing to work for solution uh, that we may come up with uh, a way to work together well. Father, I pray for our building effort that you would give us discernment in these difficult times and unity together as a congregation of people. Father, I pray for those individuals in our midst who are suffering that they might have hope and that they still in the midst of suffering might know, God, that you love them deeply. For those who are afraid because of financial stress, because of perhaps the political environment in which we live, I pray that you would grant grace to know your love. I pray for those who are suffering for Fred Thomas's dad. Father, I pray for him that you would continue to keep him and to bless that family. For Eileen Huffman, God, I pray for her that you would give her grace in these days. And Father, for others who find the suffering to be difficult, that they might in the midst of that have hope. Father, I pray for our nation as this week we face this time of, of elections, and I pray that your righteousness will prevail in the midst of our country. We pray that you would be merciful to us, not judge us, but rather cause us to walk in your ways. Father, be with us. Keep us. That we might show the truth of who God is. We might show that truth among ourselves to each other because we need to see that and to know that and most especially in the community in which we live and throughout the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.